Good morning. Good morning. Guys, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are holy, that you are perfect, that you are good, and that you are with us here, Lord. Uh, This morning, as we gather, as we sing, as we open up your scriptures, as we take communion and do all these things together, Lord, your presence is with us. And um, I just ask, Holy Spirit, come. Lord, fill us, speak to us, meet us where we are. Lord, thank you that we come uh, into this place and we come before you this morning, not on any grounds of anything we've done. You know, some of us feel like we've failed this week, this month, this year, today even. Lord, thank you that it's not on our own terms. It's nothing we can earn the right to to come before you and to worship you and to be uh, part of your family and to worship you, Lord, but all of what you have done. Thank you that you've won freedom for us, that you've won life and goodness and a hope and a future for us. Lord, speak to us now, I pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Open up your Bibles if you've got one, a device or a paper one. Galatians 5 is where we are. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. So something that is common to the human experience, whether we uh, realize it, recognize it or not, is that every single one of us on some level deeply desires to live a life of freedom. We desire freedom. That's something we want. We want to live free. We want to run free. We want uh, to be free in our mind, our heart, our body, and our soul. And we look for freedom in different places. And what Paul has been saying, what Jesus himself said, is that the freedom you are looking for is found only in relationship with me. And Paul has been laying out this paradigm for the Galatian church that uh, we got two ends of the spectrum. On one end, some of us look for freedom in religious legalism, where we want to morally perform good enough to be in relationship with God, and the end of that is only slavery. Paul's been hammering that into us. The end of that is slavery to our own moral performance that doesn't actually get us anywhere. And the other end of the spectrum, the other space that we, we search for freedom that we're looking for is in license. The legalism over here, we got license over here where we just kind of spit in God's face and say, no, thank you. I don't want you. I don't need you. I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need grace. I'm going to just go and chase after the things that I want, the desires of my own heart. And some of us, man, we've felt that where we've run hard in that direction and we've gone after things in life, pursuits and desires and temptations and whatever else, thinking that it was going to satisfy and fulfill us and give us the freedom that we long for But at the end of the day, it only left us high and dry and searching and broken and more in pain and empty and searching than when we began. And Jesus is saying, man, it's not over here in legalism, in religion. It's not over here in license. It's right in the middle. The sweet spot is loving relationship with Jesus by faith through grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Right there is complete freedom, the freedom that you are looking for, true freedom. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, So the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We go after these different ends of the spectrum. Jesus is saying, hey, freedom that you're looking for, it's right here, by grace in relationship with me. True freedom, not the false freedom of legalism or license that is gonna just end up wrecking our lives. True freedom is found only in Jesus. And Paul has been just, just hammering this into this church, these new believers who have found that freedom in Jesus and they're walking in it, they're loving it, they're running in it. And he's been saying, do not go back to the slavery that you came from. I want you to run free 
in the freedom that Jesus has bought for you. And Paul is now going to lay out in the last two chapters of the book, chapters five and six, he's going to lay out really practically what it means, what it looks like to walk in the freedom that Jesus calls us to. So let's read it together, starting at verse one of chapter five. Paul says this, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Way to end on a nice positive note, Paul. (laughs) You like circumcision? Take the whole thing off. That's what he's saying. We'll get there. We'll get there. So Paul is instructing the church to run free, run in the freedom that Christ Jesus has bought for you by his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, rising from the grave. He bought freedom. He wants you to run and to thrive and to flourish and actually pick up that freedom and take it and do something with it, right? That's what he says right from the beginning. The first call from Paul is stand firm in freedom, For freedom, Christ has set us free. That sounds like an obvious statement, but we need to be reminded of it, man. Christ set us free, why? For freedom, so that we actually take it, run with it, embrace it, and walk in the freedom and do something with it. It's like, man, we get to work here um, in in collaboration with some amazing organizations like Ally Global, uh, RATNAC, like International Justice Mission, who fight to free slaves of human trafficking, sex trafficking, and bonded labor. And the amazing thing about them is that what they do is they go in and they do raids and they free these slaves, but then they actually care about what happens after they free them. And so they have a process of rehabilitation, of taking care of them and healing them physically, of training them uh, to have job skills and go out back into the world and contribute. And just, you see this powerful arc of redemption in their lives where they're set free and then they take this newfound freedom and they just embrace it and they run with it. That's what Paul's saying to the church. Guys, Jesus bought freedom for you. Don't take that lightly. Don't take that for granted. Run with it. Man, live this free life, no longer burdened, right? What is the idea of freedom? It's freedom of the conscience, Because of what Jesus did, because he lived perfectly the life we could not live, because he was crucified on that cross, because he defeated death and rose from the grave, man, that reality for all those who believe in him is that we are free from what? From the slavery of guilt and shame and the conscience. We are free to no longer just unwittingly follow the desires of our flesh, the temptations of our lives because we were slaves to sin the scripture says, but now Christ set us free. We don't have to obey the flesh and go after these things that ultimately 
we think are good but are, are truly killing us. We're free from that. We're free from fear because we no longer fear death. We no longer have to fear anything that happens to us in this life. I can stand before you and say with confidence, if I drop dead in five minutes, which hopefully not, someone's got to preach, but if I do, I'm fine. I'm actually looking forward to seeing Jesus. No more fear of death. No more fear of what happens in this life, right? And no more fear of living a meaningless, purposeless existence because now Jesus has taken my self-centered, prideful life He's given me a new heart and a new call and a new mission and now I'm, I'm free from that slavery to actually live a life of meaning for Christ. Freedom, run with that freedom. Don't fall back. And there's a reason that Paul says in verse one, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm. This is a military kind of phrase. The idea is like the front line of an army. You've got the, the opposing army charging at you, ready to just crash into you. And you're the front line. You've got your shields up, you're shoulder to shoulder with your brothers, brothers and sisters, and you are putting the shield down, taking a firm stance, stand firm so that when the enemy crashes into you, you don't budge, you don't move an inch. Paul's saying there's going to be forces from the outside, from the inside, all around you, in the culture, in the church, everywhere, that are going to try to pull you back into this life of slavery things that are going to try to pull you back to this life of legalism and jumping through religious hoops and also pull you back into the life of sin that was enslaving you before, right? We've all felt this. We've all experienced it where we start to, to run really well in the beginning. We have this newfound freedom in Jesus, but then what happens over the days and weeks and months and years maybe, life starts to get a little bit monotonous. We maybe start to get a little bit bored. We start to get distracted, and then those, those sins, those things that were killing us before that Christ freed us from, they start to look really attractive again. Paul's saying, stand firm, be on your guard. This thing is it's reality. It's going to come crashing against you. Shields up, take a firm stance in the gospel and be ready. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's a yoke? It's not the middle of an egg. It's, uh, it's what ha- in, in those days, it was what they would put over the, the neck and the back of like a uh, cattle or an oxen and then they would put like the, the plow behind them or whatever load, the wagon, whatever that they were carrying and the, the, the load, all the weight of that thing would fall on the neck through the yoke of the thing. And Paul is saying, that's, that's slavery. That's carrying a heavy burden on your neck, on your back and carrying that through life. Paul is saying, man, if you don't have freedom, if you're not walking in the freedom that Jesus has won for us, you're actually carrying around a load, a weight, a burden that was never yours to carry. So my old pastor, when I became a Christian, when I was a teenager years ago, he just looked at me and I was this, this messed up teenager that I came to him and he said, man, you are carrying a sack of bricks on your back right now. And he introduced me to Jesus. When I actually met Jesus, man, this feeling of freedom, that this weight, this burden of my own sin and brokenness was just lifted off. That's what Paul's saying. Don't submit again. Christ set you free. Don't go back to that slavery. Instead, Jesus actually says in Matthew's gospel, he says, take my yoke because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Paul's saying, man, the yoke that an oxen or a cattle carries, that's that's slavery, that's legalism, that's slavery to your own sin. That's going to weigh you down and ruin you. But the yoke that Jesus offers that he calls us to to strap on with him and, and go shoulder to shoulder with him, it's light and it's easy. And so if your, if your relationship with God, if your Christianity feels burdensome to you, if it feels like a weight on your shoulders rather than freedom, 
And you might have drifted back into legalism. You might have drifted back under this yoke of slavery because Jesus said, my, my burden is easy. And I love how uh, the author Eugene Peterson put it when he paraphrased that verse. He said it like this. This is the heart of Jesus. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I will not lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. How do we stand firm in the freedom Jesus bought for us? We stay yoked to Jesus. We stay close to Jesus. We draw near to Jesus. Not try harder, try harder, try harder. We draw near to Jesus, the unforced rhythms of grace. It's the joy of walking with Jesus. It's light. It's free. It's not slavery. We stay yoked to Jesus. We stand firm in freedom. And then second thing, Paul's going to encourage us to stand firm in grace. Look at verse 2 to 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So Paul's saying to these these uh, Judaizers, these, the circumcision party, these people who want to make it all about following the religious law and not about relationship with Jesus, he's saying, okay, here's how it works. It's all or nothing. If you want to follow the law, it's got to be the whole law and you have to keep it perfectly, which is impossible. That's why you end up enslaved to it because you're trying to justify yourself by good works. You can never live up to the standard that is set. And so you end up in this perpetual cycle, right? The treadmill of always trying to be better and do more, but it gets you nowhere. But then on the flip side, it's all of grace, right? It's either all of law or all of grace. You can't have a little bit of both. It can't be a little bit of my good works that saved me and a little bit of grace, thank you, Jesus. It's all or nothing. If you choose the way of your own works and trying to be good enough, and trying to perform for God, so be it. But you are then severed from Christ, cut off, fallen from grace. I think it's so interesting and scary that what Paul is saying is that the only way for us to actually be cut off and severed from God is not to be really, really bad, right? Because the heart of God is that no matter how far we've fallen, no matter how bad we've sinned, no matter how fall we've far we've fallen short of the glory of God. He is always calling us back to himself, right? It's the picture of uh, the loving father in the prodigal son story, right? Where the, the son runs away, takes his inheritance, squanders it on prostitutes and on parties and all these things, ruins his life, is in the lowest of the low, but then comes back to the father. And the picture of God is this father who doesn't shame the son, but actually runs toward him and welcomes him in with open arms and puts his coat and his ring on him and throws him a party because he's home. He welcomes him home. That's the heart of God. Paul's saying we can never fall so short that we're cut off from grace. We can never sin so bad that we're cut off from grace. The only way to be cut off from grace, severed from Christ, is to look in the eyes of that father who's trying to welcome us home and we say, no, thank you, God. I'll do it my own way. We choose pride. 
We choose to try and fix ourselves rather than let God welcome us home and make us new again. That's the only way to be severed from grace, cut off. It's either all of grace or it's all of law because to receive Jesus, to receive the the grace of God is by definition to say, I can't do it myself. I got nothing. I need Jesus. And by definition, to, to accept circumcision, the law, is to say, I actually can do it myself. I can be good enough. I don't need you, God. Paul's saying, do not go back to that. That's going to get you nowhere. Jesus is calling you into freedom. Receive his grace. We stand firm in grace. And then Paul's going to encourage us to stand firm in love. Verse five and six. For through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So what's Paul saying there? He's saying that the outward works of the flesh without love count for nothing. He's saying you can get circumcised or you cannot get circumcised. It makes no difference. If it's an option, I don't know why you would choose to get circumcised, but maybe some were. But he's saying it makes no difference. Your circumcision, your following works of the law is not getting you anywhere closer to God or your failure to get circumcised is not getting you anywhere closer to God. You're misunderstanding how this works because what you're trying to do is you're trying to put the outward works first to clean yourselves up on the outside when you haven't actually taken care of the root of the issue, which is your heart, which is that you need forgiveness of your sins. You need to know the God of the universe who loves you, came for you, died for you, rose for you. You need to know him and get a new heart and he will make you a new creation. It actually does no good to just circumcise yourself on the outside and appear as a religious person on the outside. But we, we still mix this up, don't we? They were mixing it up then and we still mix it up now. This is when we you know, portray this thing, whether it's intentional or not, where we send this message to people that you actually, before you become a Christian, in order to become a Christian, you need to clean yourself up a little bit on the outside. Right, you need to stop swearing. Christians don't swear. Right, you need to stop smoking. Christians don't smoke. Christians don't do drugs. Get over that thing, right? And once you do, or at least appear to have gotten over that thing, then you can come to Jesus and you can be a Christian. The problem is that there's, without Jesus, there's no power to transform. There's no power for these things to be removed from our lives, from our hearts. And we're putting the cart before the horse. We're mixing it up. Right, like I just had uh, dinner with one of my best friends in the whole world a, a few nights ago and he comes from a background of, of heroin and fentanyl addiction and he has this incredible story of coming to Jesus and being made new and transformed and he's walking with Jesus and serving Jesus now. But originally, he was addicted to drugs and he had this Bible study, this group of men around him who he would sit in his car outside of the Bible study and he would shoot up in his car and he'd be scared to go inside because he thought, oh man, I gotta, I gotta get over this thing that I'm doing before I, before I receive Jesus so I can look like all these really good Christian boys in there. But then they came around him and said, no man, come inside. And he just tells these stories of he was just zonked out of his mind. He can't even see straight, but they just sat with him, put hands on him and prayed for him and just gave him the grace, gave him the space and the patience. And he came to Jesus but it wasn't an immediate, instant, everything's better and looks good on the outside in his life. He was a wreck. 
but he loved Jesus and that's where he needed to start. That's where we all need to start. It's the gospel. It's not get over our addictions first. It's the gospel. Only Jesus himself has the power to save us, change us, give us a new heart. And he just said to me the other night over dinner, he was like, man, praise God that these men didn't tell me I needed to get over my heroin addiction before I became a Christian. He said, I didn't have the power to do that. I couldn't do that. And if it's, I need to get over my addictions and all my garbage before I come to Jesus, that's backwards. That's not Jesus' approach. Jesus' approach is come to me. Come to me. Bring your baggage. Bring all your stuff. I'll make you new. I'll forgive you. I'll change you. I'll set you free. And then I will work with you. The unforced rhythms of grace. The analogy that Jesus often uses is like a tree, right? A tree and fruit. And so he says to the people who want to make it all about the fruit, right? You want to clean up, take like a cherry tree. You don't like cherries? I don't like your cherries. Your cherries are unchristian. And so we can chop all the cherries off, all the branches. But if you haven't taken out the root of the tree and replaced it, what's going to happen? Give it enough time, more cherries are going to grow. He says, you need a new tree. You need a new root. We need to get to the heart of the issue. Do not make the mistake, Christians, of going after the fruit and not the actual tree. It's gospel first. It's grace first. It's love. It's a work of the Spirit of God, not of the flesh. And Paul's saying, man, he's, he's saying, for through the Spirit of, through the Spirit, sorry, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. He's saying, man, do not make Christianity a religious system of adherence to a set of rules in order to become a better person and live a better life. That's not what it is. Christianity is coming to a person, Jesus, and being made a new creation. You don't need a a better life. You need new life. You don't need to try harder and work harder and be a better person. You need to become a new person. And that only happens through the Spirit of God, through faith, by receiving what he has done for you. And then verse six, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. So to just try and do a bunch of works without love, love for Jesus, love for people means nothing. Paul already said it in this beautiful chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he says, I could speak, excuse me, in the tongues of men and of angels, but if I don't have love, I've got nothing. I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I could have all faith in the world. I could have all gifts of prophecy and knowledge. If I had all faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, I have nothing. I could give away all my possessions and I could actually deliver my own body to be burned as a sacrifice. If I don't have love, I've gained nothing. Faith working through love. It starts with love. It starts with Jesus. It starts with the gospel. And then inevitably, if our faith is real, if our love for Jesus is real, It's faith working through love. Real faith will result in real love, real acts of love. So how are you doing loving people? If you want to gauge for how real your faith is, for how genuine your walk with Jesus is, don't try to think about how much theology you know. How much is your knowledge working itself out in self-sacrificial love to the people around you, not just the ones who are easy to love, the ones who are hard to love. Are you genuinely giving more than you are taking? Is your faith working itself out through 
love. Paul's going to go on and encourage us to stand firm in perseverance. Verse 7 through 9. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You were running well, verse 7 says. You were running well. Paul, and actually the whole New Testament, loves to use imagery and analogies. Uh, Paul loves the, the imagery of running for the Christian life. He often says that the, the Christian life, walking with Jesus, is kind of like running a race. And I think the reason for that is because think about a race. Think about like a, an ultra marathon, a hundred mile race. Okay, it's long, but it's constant motion forward. We're always moving. In a race, if you stop, you're out of the race. A race is constantly one step at a time moving in a direction. It has a starting point, but it also has an end point. It has a finish line and it has a goal. And so Paul's saying the Christian life is like that, where we are constantly not stagnant. We are constantly in motion, moving forward, growing, becoming more like Jesus, heading toward the finish line, the goal of being perfected at the end of the day when we are in heaven with Jesus. But until that time, it is bumpy, it is tiring, it's sweaty, it's exhausting. We have setbacks. Sometimes it's joyful. Sometimes it's not so joyful. Sometimes we have blisters on our feet and we're bleeding and we're dehydrated and it's a mess, but it is constant motion in a direction from the start line to the finish line. And Paul says to this church, you were running well. You started off this life of faith so well. Intimacy with Jesus. You were stoked. You were joyful. You were free. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So the Christian walk, the Christian race, the run is, Paul says, obeying the truth. Verse 7, obeying the truth. Not just knowing the truth, It's this constant forward motion of truth in action. Truth in action. Not just knowing a bunch of truth in our head, but actually boots on the ground, putting it into motion, obeying the truth. You were running so well, Galatians. Who hindered you? So this is like the image of, um, there's this guy named David Goggins. You might know about him. He was an ex-US Navy SEAL, and he became just like an ultra-marathon runner, and just he's just an overall crazy guy. Um, don't check him out because then I'll get in trouble because he swears a lot. Um, but he's crazy. And so he became, he was a Navy SEAL and then he became an ultra marathon runner. But before he became an ultra marathon runner, right, he was a very large power lifter, right? So he's like th- over 300 pounds, very strong, lifts a lot of weight, but does not run. And what happened is a bunch of his buddies who are, are current, were current SEALs, they were killed in a mission that went wrong. And they left families that now had no dads. So Goggins wanted to raise money for those families to send the kids to college and help them have better lives, which was amazing. And so the way that he was going to do that was to run an ultra marathon as a fundraiser, as a 300-pound power lifter. He tried to run a 100-mile marathon, ultra marathon, with zero training. Right? And so what happened? He's a huge guy, lots of muscle, also lots of padding, trying to be respectful, lots of padding, and uh, never run before. And he's tight in his hips, so his stride is not ideal. He's got all these issues with his body. Uh, His nutrition was terrible. So all these like little ultra marathon runners are like ready to go. They've got their water packs and their little nutritional goo, whatever it is. And then uh, he shows up with a box of Ritz crackers (laughs) and a protein shake. And he's like, I'm ready to go. I got this. So he was fine for the first few miles, two miles, five miles, 10 miles, 20 miles. 
All these little issues that he had, though, by mile 70, had compounded, and he had stress fractures in both of his feet from the constant weight slamming down on them. He had shin splints in both of his shins, and uh, he was so dehydrated that he like, basically passed out and couldn't stand up because he was just eating Ritz crackers and not drinking water. Right? And so he was ruined by mile 70, still 30 miles to go. And that's kind of the idea Paul's talking about, right? Where it's these little things, there's these little things in the Christian life that at the beginning we allow in to influence us that we don't think are a big deal, but if left on their own, like he says in verse nine, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's a little bit of yeast causes an entire loaf of bread to rise. If we let these little things in, little sins, little habits, little thought patterns, whatever they might be, people, and we don't think it's a big deal. Maybe it's not in mile two or in mile four or in mile 20, but by mile 70, we got broken feet, shin splints, and we're throwing up on the side of the road and we're out of the race. Who hindered you? You were running well. Paul's looking at this church and he's going, man, what is it? What have you allowed into your life that is hindering you from obeying the truth? Church, what is hindering you from putting into action in your daily life the things that you are learning from the word of God and hearing from the spirit of God and the things that you're taking into your mind that you know you need to walk out, what is hindering you from obeying the truth? Maybe it's time, right? None of us have time. Maybe it's priorities. Maybe it is sin. Maybe there are certain habits and certain things that we've allowed into our lives or back into our lives that are tripping us up, that we don't think is actually a huge deal, but if we leave it and don't deal with it, it's gonna end up in shin splints at mile 70. What is hindering you? If you're honest with yourself, if you're willing to let the Holy Spirit show you the things in your life, the decisions that you are making right now, the excuses that you're making right now, what is hindering you from obeying the truth? Or as Paul puts it more specifically, who is hindering you? Are there people in your life, in your immediate circle, the people that you have allowed to speak over and into your life to influence your mind, to influence your heart and the decisions that you make? Are there people who are hindering you? And I'm not talking about we only need to hang out with other Christians or people who believe exactly what we believe already, but the people who you've allowed to be most influential in your life, are they helping you move toward Jesus and become more like Jesus or are they actually hindering you in some ways? Because this race is constant forward motion. So even are, are there people immediately in your life who are, maybe they don't seem like they're bringing a bunch of negative stuff that's pulling you backward into your life and your walk with Jesus. But even if they're just neutral and complacent and they've stopped moving forward and they've just become comfortable to just mail it in, to just show up on a Sunday, to just show up to community group or not even do those things, to show up to a thing once a month and in their own time, in the dark, they're not walking with Jesus. There's no prayer life. There's no vibrancy. There's no joy. There's no discipline. There's none of these things. It's not a a fruitful, vibrant walk with Jesus. It's just comfortable complacency. Don't allow yourself to believe that you can be around that constantly and have that speaking into your life and not get pulled into that inertia. There's a like kind of a leadership principle that I actually think is pretty good. It's called the five in five principle where this guy says, show me the five closest people with the most influence in your life 
and I'll show you what you're going to look like in five years. Because those are the people that you're running shoulder to shoulder with. Those are the people that are either dragging you back, keeping you stagnant, or pushing you forward in this race, leading you closer to Jesus, speaking truth over your life, influencing your life in a good way. My mom is one of the wisest people that I know, and she, uh, she has a term for this. She calls it the inertia of comfort, where it's this like invisible force, this inertia that when the people around us are super comfortable and just complacent and they've stopped growing and they've stopped wanting to go deeper and actually grow in this, this race, this walk with Jesus, it's very, very hard to pull ourselves away from that, get our heads above the clouds and actually run with freedom the race that Jesus has called us to. Are there things that you need to extricate from your life? Are there people that you need to reconsider the influence that you are giving them? Who are the people surrounding you? What are the things, the habits, the mindsets in your life? Are they holding you back, hindering you, or are they pushing you closer to Jesus? Paul's saying, stand firm in perseverance because this is a long run. And the things that you don't think are a big deal now, they will compound. And it matters what you do in the day-to-day. The author of Hebrews says it like this. I love this. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that what? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If that's you, church, individual, if you are hindered right now, you have been hindered by people, by things, by whatever it might be, by sin, what does he want you to do? To not grow weary and lose heart in this race, but to do what? To fix your eyes on Jesus. Because God is not a God who wants to beat you over the head with that and shame you with it and make you feel terrible about where you are right now. This is a process and he wants to pick you up out of the mud, fill you with his spirit and call you forward. But how do we do it? We fix our eyes not on our failure, we fix our eyes on Jesus because this is what we can do sometimes. It's good to, to be aware of how sinful and how imperfect we are, but if we're not careful, we can dwell and fixate so much on our own sin and the stupid things that we're doing that we actually start to drift toward those things, right? It's like this. Uh, when you're shooting like a free throw in basketball, what do they tell you to do? Don't look at your hands. Look at where you're aiming. Look at the hoop, right? If you've ever taught somebody how to drive a car or you've learned how to drive a car, what happens if the person teaching you tells you to watch out for that curb and don't hit it, right? Stay in the middle of the lane. You're just staring at that curb and eventually you start drifting toward it and crunch, you need new rims, right? Because that's what happens. We drift and move toward the thing that our, our field of vision fixates on. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us, fix our eyes on Jesus because Jesus is the furthest thing from our sin and our brokenness. So the way out of these habits and these these lifestyles and these sins is not to fixate on the sin. 
It's to fix our eyes on Jesus and move toward him with intention and with purpose and be yoked to him and spend time with him and to dwell in his presence and be filled with his spirit. And that's how we get rid of these things in our lives. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The last thing Paul tells us is to stand firm in the cross. Verse 10 to 12 says this, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. What is Paul saying? The, the people who are teaching circumcision, so the legalists, the law keepers who have come in and are teaching circumcision are trying to convince the rest of the church that Paul, this leader that they respect and look up to, is also teaching circumcision, works righteousness, be made right by the law. And Paul is saying, if that were true, if I was still preaching circumcision and not grace, why am I still being persecuted? So basically what he's saying is, it's really easy and it's really comfortable to preach works righteousness. And it's so true. It's still true today, right? Do you guys know how easy it would be? And honestly, if I'm being honest, like tempting sometimes to not stand up here and just like talk about sin and talk about the cross and talk about how sinful we are and how badly we need Jesus, but to just get up here and basically do like the Jesus as life coach sort of thing, right? And give you some nice little principles about how Jesus can make your life better and live a better life and more comfortable and more this and more that. It's really easy, if we can fix ourselves and we just preach these messages about how we can fix ourselves by living better. Paul's saying, if I was doing that, I wouldn't be persecuted, but I am still being persecuted because I'm preaching the cross. And the reason for that is because the cross is, what does he say? If I was still preaching circumcision, the offense of the cross has been removed. The message of the gospel, the message of the cross of Jesus and our need for it is necessarily offensive. It has some edge to it because it holds up a mirror in front of our face and shows us our brokenness. It shows us our desperate need for a savior that we actually can't fulfill ourselves. It shows us our need for Jesus and that's a humbling thing to admit, to acknowledge that I cannot do anything to save myself, that I actually need Jesus and what he did for me. That's offensive and we live right now in a time where unfortunately we're being told constantly that the worst thing that could possibly happen to any of us is that we get offended, right? Nothing offensive is allowed to happen. I'm gonna shut you down. I'm gonna cancel you. Paul's saying there's actually a good reason sometimes to be offended. We need it because we are prideful by nature and we actually need to be shaken a little bit and poked a little bit and woken up a little bit and shown that we're actually not as good as we think we are and we actually need a savior and that savior is Jesus because there's no power in just trying to be better on our own. There's no power to transform. There's no power to be forgiven and saved. There's no freedom. That's what Paul's saying. There's no freedom in that. But the power to forgive and save and transform and set us free is in the cross. That's why everything that we do here tries to to just focus and center around the message of the cross, of the gospel. And that's why Paul is so passionate, so passionate. That's why he says, I wish those who are pulling you away from the the message of the cross would emasculate themselves. That sounds harsh. But if nothing else, that shows us the importance, how essential this is. 
to never stray from the message of the gospel in anything that we do. Because anything else that we make this about, and if we make our gatherings about anything other than the cross and the gospel, if we make our, our little hangouts and our barbecues and our events and our summer this and our family this and our, all these things that are good, if it's just about that and it's not about the cross, the power of God to save and transform us, if it's not actually about being formed in the image of Jesus, what are we doing? We're just a social club. We're just hanging out. And so the encouragement for us, man, is stand firm in the cross. All the things that we do, man, in your circles, in your community group, in your Bible study, in your social life, in these things, yes, do the, do the stuff, have fun, do all these things, but man, don't forget about the cross. Don't let these things just stay at this surface level and never go deeper and never challenge one another and never bring it back to the person of Jesus and never bring it back down to, hey, this is what I'm learning. This is what God's doing in my life. This is where I feel convicted. Hey, this is where I'm falling into sin. Can you pray for me? Right, like these deep things that this work that God and the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives, it happens in community. So don't let your community just be this surface level, hang out, have a barbecue thing. Let the gospel, let the cross of Jesus permeate your thinking, permeate your conversations, permeate the words that you say, how you do hospitality, how you host people. Let the gospel permeate the joy that just lives on your face, the way that you love people. Because Paul's saying, man, church, life is way too short. Eternity is way too long. The glory of God matters way too much to just drift through life enslaved and not walking and running forward in the freedom that Christ has won for you on the cross. It's too urgent. It matters too much. And this freedom that Christ has bought for us, guys, is too good to not step into that. Let's step into that together. Let's make each other better. Let's push each other forward. Not hinder each other, but push each other forward closer to Jesus together as a unit. Yeah? Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us, for what you continue to do and all that you want to do in and through our lives, Lord, and in and through this church. Lord, I know you have great plans, Lord, but it requires us to cooperate with you, to live in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, to come together with the intention of running this race with perseverance. So help us to do that, God, because we admit that we get distracted we admit that we get hindered and pulled off course by sin, by temptations, by addictions, by things that are trying to pull us back. But Lord, you have set us free by the power of your blood and the power of the cross, you have set us free. So we claim that today. That sin has no power over us if we have put our faith in you, Jesus. That we walk free from guilt, from shame, from any condemnation, from any fear. Lord, if there is still fear in this place, if there's still guilt and shame in this place for those who have trusted you, Lord, would you eradicate it now by your spirit? Would there be freedom from sin and addiction in this place, Lord? Oh, that we would draw near to you, not because we have to, but because we get to. And you are so good and life with you is so good, Lord. It is light and it is free. Help us to walk in that, I pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.